Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to the FT Business Books podcast, the place to discover the best in business writing. I'm Andrew Hill, Management Editor, and with me this time is Emma Jacobs, Features Writer, Interviewer and Columnist. Hello. We've been talking in this series to the six authors who have made the shortlist for the world's most coveted prize for business writing, the 2017 Financial Times and McKinsey Business Book of the Year Award. You can find the shortlist at ft.com forward slash book award and find out who the winner is on November the 6th. Tweet us at ftworkcareers using the hashtag ftbizbooks. This week we meet our sixth and final author, Ellen Powell, author of Reset, My Fight for Inclusion and Lasting Change. Published in September, the book tackles head-on the problem of discrimination and harassment in Silicon Valley partly through the lens of Ellen's unsuccessful discrimination lawsuit against her then-employer Kleiner Perkins Caulfield & Byers, the Silicon Valley venture capital firm. Twelve years after she started in venture capital, she writes, fewer than 6% of people making decisions there are women and fewer than 1% are black. I was struck in particular by this line from the penultimate chapter. By 2016, many of us had come to realise that the whole tech system had exclusion built into its design. To become truly inclusive, tech needed a big change, a revolution in thinking, what we began to describe as a complete reset. Ellen joins us now from San Francisco. Welcome, Ellen. Thank you for having me. What you describe in Reset is a really harrowing series of events and incidents culminating in the lawsuit, which obviously generated vast global publicity, both good and bad for you. And you write at the beginning of the book that revisiting those days had reopened a wound that was close to healing. So I'm bound to ask, why did you put yourself through it again? I was really excited to be helping people. So throughout the trial, there were people who would come up to me on the street or would reach out through different social networks to tell me that hearing what had happened to me helped them understand their own experiences better and made them feel better about themselves and the work that they had done. And that was in a very distorted story, right? So my story was coming out through this awkward trial process and Piner, the company that I had sued, had hired a crisis PR firm and there was crisis communication style, which was to hire what I describe as troll farms um, to really tarnish my reputation and make it seem like I was a random, undeserving person who had an anomalous uh, view of the situation. And what I wanted to do was to share the whole story and let people you know, decide for themselves what the situation was, and also to really be able to connect with other people who had had similar experiences and to give them some inspiration at the end of the day. Like, I still think tech is 
overall this great area for change and has so many possibilities and would love to see people continue to try to make it a better place. I mean, Ellen, to take that point up, it is an exciting and innovative place, but also there's been a lot of stories about harassment and discrimination in Silicon Valley this year, particularly in the wake of Susan Fowler's blog post. Why do you think Silicon Valley has a particular problem with its culture? I think it's because there's so much power concentrated in so few people. You know, nobody's held it accountable for any of its actions. So it's portrayed as this meritocracy where people can really work hard and do great things and change the world. And that helps fuel these egos and this sense of entitlement to the massive, massive wealth and power that have been created in the last few decades. What happened was a few people came out of the semiconductor industry, started investing in people who looked like them, and they were, you know, this group of eight white men. Mm. And it ended up, you know, fueling this industry that was built around this homogenous set of people. And the amount of money concentrated in a few people and the growth of these companies very quickly in a matter of decades has generated this intense desire for people to come out to Silicon Valley and make a lot of money fast. And that's been a change in the last 10 years that has brought this element of kind of this frat boy culture, this thought that um, there are no consequences for your actions, that if you are this rock star engineer or CEO, you can do whatever you want. And that has made this culture very difficult and allowed this unfettered harassment and discrimination. One of the things that occurred to me, and it also comes out from the Susan Fowler case, which was obviously involving Uber, was the rapid growth of these companies without really any of the normal rules being put in place. The kind of, I mean, one can be sceptical about whether the rules themselves work, but human resources departments, part of your case or complaint against Kleiner hinged around whether they could find their discrimination rules and whether they had it, which they didn't, any human resources. Is that, again, a particular problem of Silicon Valley because of the fast growth and the sort of scepticism about whether they should have the normal bureaucracy of big organizations? I think that's true. I think that idea of trying to revolutionize industries, and that language comes from Steve Jobs' ad campaign, I can't remember what year that was, but like this idea that we're creating revolutions and the concept that's very popular in Silicon Valley around NIH, like we don't want anything that's not invented here within the company. So I'm going to reinvent everything. I'm going to revolutionize all these processes. And a lot of the human behavior and people processes fell at the bottom of the list of things to do and just weren't thoughtfully created or enforced. Since the book's been published, of course, and and since Susan Fowler's blog, Silicon Valley's kind of been let off the hook slightly because it's been eclipsed by Harvey Weinstein's case, shedding light on sexual discrimination and harassment across that industry and elsewhere. Do you think there are parallels between Silicon Valley and the movie industry? I think you see the same concentration of power in a few people where there are the kingmakers, and you know I use king very intentionally. I think there are the people who have the power to decide if you're going to be successful or not, and that comes in Silicon Valley in the form of you know the venture capitalists who decide whether to fund you to the tune of billions of dollars like Uber or not fund you at all like most of the black women entrepreneurs who have had a very hard time getting their funding at the same levels of their counterparts. So you see that also in the movie industry where, you know, one person can make or break your career. And with that intense concentration of power, you know, there's abuse and the power differential and that causes all sorts of problems. I think there's also a very 
homogenous concentration of power. So most of the people, the power brokers, are white men in both industries, and that has created this homogenous overall industry. So there's a lot of parallel. I, you know, I don't know enough about LA to know exactly how it operates, but from what I'm seeing, the concentration of power, the homogeneity of leadership, and the lack of accountability are the three things that I think are really very similar and have caused very similar problems. Do you think there's a feeling in, at the moment, particularly with, say, the Me Too um, social media campaign, that the tide's turned in terms of attitudes towards harassment and women feeling that they can disclose harassment? I mean, in the book, you talk about how difficult it was to communicate the problems within the company. Do you think that the tide's turned? I think the tide has turned. I think people are less vilified for sharing their stories. I think there was a lot of disbelief. And, you know, you can see that there were some people who had raised issues earlier in both Silicon Valley and in Hollywood, but hadn't been listened to. So there's mm. telling the stories, but there's also the more receptive audience. So both people in corporations and the press have been more receptive to these stories. And I think the general, it's because the general public is more receptive. And a big part of that has been other people telling their stories and building up, kind of taking the hits as the environment shifted to start understanding that it's part of a much bigger pattern and it's much more of a, a systemic issue than this one person had this one bad experience that may or may not have happened. That skepticism is mm. no longer as prevalent. And I also see it in the fact that, you know, you've got these people where there are dozens and dozens of women speaking up. I just saw something like, I guess there's another director and over 100 people have contacted the reporter now after the LA Times broke a story about his bad behavior. So there's the quantity of people. There's also the many different stories that are helping people get a better understanding. And I also think there are the private stories where people may not be comfortable talking about it publicly in the press, but they are telling their friends. So I'll have people come up to the street and say, you know, I believe you because my coworker was harassed and she only told me after she read about what happened to you in your trial and now I understand what actually happened. Or my mom told me after hearing about the trial that she had been moved into like this much smaller office and had this terrible experience after she had been promoted. Or my mom was thinking about suing her university because she had had this terrible experience in getting promoted or not getting promoted. So there are people who are talking about it and helping to dispel the skepticism and helping to get people to understand the scope and nature of the problem in a way that wasn't there five or ten years ago. I mean, I think you say in the book that what your own experiences sometimes themselves pale into insignificance compared with some of the experience that other people have. But at the other end of the spectrum, how much... Do you feel that there is a part of this culture is to do with almost the day-to-day -day discrimination? The I think the jargon is now calling the microaggressions, the elements of talking over and taking credit, men taking credit uh, for women's ideas and these sorts of aspects. How seriously do you think those contribute to an overall climate of, of discrimination, perhaps then leading to harassment. Yeah, it's interesting because I think the two are combined. I haven't really thought through exactly how they're connected, but it, it is a sense of entitlement and the sense of unequalness, right, where men or the people of a certain race feel 
like their ideas are more important or that what they have to say, it trumps what other people are saying, that they are entitled to more speaking time than other people. And it's very subtle because you don't notice, but then you notice other people start talking over you or people stop paying attention to you when you speak. And that means you probably tend to start speaking less and then people don't know what your ideas are. They don't know that you're in the room. That, you know, that It's a slow process of making you somewhat invisible and then you feel that and that becomes something that you carry with you every day and into every meeting and into every experience and it's incredibly draining to try to figure out, well, how am I going to get my idea across and hold on to the credit for it so that when I speak, people kind of ignore it, but then somebody else will say it who doesn't look like me and will get credit for it and people all of a sudden think it's a great idea and move forward. Should I be speaking up about it or are people going to say I'm not a team player, that I'm looking for credit, that I have sharp elbows, that I'm not looking out for the overall good of the company because I'm so focused on myself and my getting credit for what I'm saying. So it's complicated. And I think often people don't understand that dynamic, both the people who are perpetuating that experience and the people who are experiencing that experience. So hopefully the book and other people who have been talking about it can shed light on it so that people can stop internalizing the problem and realize that it is a bigger problem than them and not take it personally. Did you feel when you were writing the book that it sat in any kind of more recent tradition of books by Sheryl Sandberg and Anne-Marie Slaughter and, and others, or did it feel very much as though you were aiming to break entirely new ground here? I mean, what, what sort of background reading did you perhaps do in order to think about how you were going to frame this? I wish I had been so thoughtful. Um, (laughs) I was more (laughs) kind of, okay, I want to frame my story and my experiences in a way that helps as many people as possible. And one of the things I did think a lot about was how to address issues that I felt I experienced because of my race and my understanding of how that similar or different experiences impact people of other races and ethnicities. So really trying to bring this to something that's broader than just gender, because when you look at companies, when they are discriminatory around gender, they're usually discriminatory around race and ethnicity and a variety of other areas. So trying to show that this is a much bigger pattern and that it's an issue of you know being inclusive of everyone and not just throwing a few more women into the mix of power. Just to to go back to the question about Sandberg and Anne-Marie Slaughter, there's the idea of entitlement and the review of your book, say, that we ran. There were a lot of commenters that were saying, here's another entitled woman not missing out on the chop jobs as if this is a group of spoilt women that are stamping their feet because they're not getting the biggest prize rather than, you know, on top of all the other prizes that they've got. Did you anticipate that kind of criticism before you wrote the book? Yes, it's hard to not make that criticism. I mean, I have had a huge wealth of opportunities. I've had jobs that people would be really excited to have themselves and made more money than most people will in their lifetimes. I think the problem is if this happens to me and people at my level, what is happening to the people who are not as well educated, who have not had as many opportunities and who 
are not as vocal or not as, you know, able to speak up for themselves. You know, I think it's harder for people who, you know, have different sets of obligations. And I think I made it very clear in the book. Like, I was lucky that I was able to litigate. Most people don't have that financial security or, you know, that belief that they're going to be able to get another job at some point. And I had both. So that made it um, possible for me to litigate. Most people don't have that opportunity and aren't able to speak up. So, For me, it was, yes, I I need to speak up, but I have to stay true to my own story and my own experiences. And I did try to bring in other people's experiences into the book as much as possible so that, you know, I do realize that I have this very unique experience. But, you know, it's it's much broader than just me and and getting to that top level. It's Mm. about the rot throughout the system. And on the topic of litigation, what were the legal problems in writing the books? And did you ever battle with the lawyers? Oh, my gosh, I think I must (laughs) have had like seven or eight calls and like, Everyone was like, all right, let's do another call and try to work through. So, you know, it's a very hard thing to speak up because you're worried about this other entity that has tremendous resources and, you know, are willing to put them against you. So whether it's like the lawyers or the crisis communications firms or what I call the troll farms, it's very daunting. And I think what worked for me was that I had a good memory and I had a lot of notes about what had happened to me. And I have this belief and this knowledge that I am right about what I've seen and how I've viewed what I've seen. And that made it more comfortable for me to push against understandable conservatism of lawyers around what would be appropriate to say and what would be risky to say. All that said, I think there is also the problem in the system around non-disclosure agreement and the inability to talk about what's happened to you that has perpetuated this problem for so long. So does that mean there's a part two waiting to be written? Oh, I I really enjoyed writing this book and it was a great process, but I don't know if I have another book in me. (laughs) <laughs> I was like one All and I'm like, left this out. is my only book I gotta make sure the cover is right I gotta make sure the title I'm happy with because I think this is gonna be the only one it's a lot of work it's a lot of time and, and I think as I mentioned like it's not comfortable for me to talk about myself I'm not this extrovert that really enjoys putting myself out there so for me like this whole process has been a great experience but it's not natural to me and I don't know that I'm the best at it so I'm hopeful that I can use my platform to highlight some other people to highlight the issues and build momentum and hopefully others can continue to push things forward. Could you just give us one thing perhaps that you think women or minorities should do to fight the exclusion culture that you describe? And then perhaps one thing that the majority maybe, or the majority in business, certainly the men or the majority ethnic groups could do. I think it's really to try to understand what's happening around you and try to filter out what is actually not about you and is more about bias built into your organization and what is actually something that you can do better yourself and try to think of it from that perspective instead of trying to do every single thing that gets thrown at you um, and told where you're told to change this, change that, change this, change that, to kind of filter that through this lens of all the information that's out there today, you know, whether it's Lean In or Reset or all the many, you know, other books that are out there, Own It, you know, there's a whole wealth of information out there that can help you understand the systemic nature of 
the workplace and trying to figure out how you navigate your own situation informed by what's going on out there. Like if I had known that there were, you know, other people who had been asked to, you know, get the cookies or make the copies or take the notes, you know, I would have been more prepared to have a response in those situations or to think about like, you know, how do I get somebody to help me so that I'm not the person who's always doing that. But for me, it was, I had to sit down and and think about, well, this is happening to me again. Is this my issue? They're saying I'm not a team player, so I do I have to do more of this? And all of that energy and trying to process and understand what was happening to me was exhausting. So being able to kind of understand the systemic nature of what's happening to you and then come up with a game plan based on all the information out there can be very powerful. And how about the men or the other majority ethnic groups in the Yeah, world. I think it's um, for the past you know, dozen years, women have been told, get a thicker skin, let these things slide off and don't take them personally. And I think that advice would apply to men too. I think there are a lot of men who want to be allies, who want to be helpful, but who are scared to speak up that they'll use the wrong word or they'll use the wrong idea, that they'll express their earnestness and their idea in a way that offends people. And I think it's a learning process and you have to understand that you may make mistakes but that you can learn from them and to have a thick skin about not getting too offended by people trying to help correct you even if it may not sound very positive and it may come across in a way that is hurtful like to not take that personally and to learn and take something better to that next conversation. So looking at the other finalists on the shortlist do you have a favorite or one that you'd like to read if you haven't read the others? Oh you know I had such a great conversation with Brian Merchant that I'm going to say his book. I think you know, we're both looking at the same industry, and his view was very specific to one device, and I found that very fascinating. I thought that was a, a great a great counterpart to my experiences. Yes, he mentioned the conversation you'd had, and in fact, Walter Scheidel, who's at Stanford, also said he was looking forward to reading your book, because even though he's in a completely different domain, he's got to understand the Silicon Valley world around him. And do you have an all-time favorite business book? Oh, that's a good question. Um I don't have an all-time favorite business book. I, I mean, there have been so many good ones that have come out. For a long time, I really liked economics and right. that kind of different mindset and how to think about decision-making. So maybe I would say economics, but there's just been so many great books, I haven't ever picked one. Perhaps never had time to get through all the ones that are out there. It seems like people are really interested in learning about how these companies operate. It seems like it's different than before. Like People are looking at specific companies more than industries. I mean, you're the expert. There is a huge appetite for business books, particularly in the United States, and less so, but still a lot in the UK. And apparently Australia is a very big business book market, I was told by somebody. So I think there's an appetite within those English-speaking business communities for business books. And perhaps it's also fueled by the financial crisis, people wanting to understand or try to understand what happened. One option for people that have had discrimination or harassment is to turn it into a campaigning platform. But if you're not naturally predisposed to that, how do you feel at the end of it? Is it exhausting? It is a little exhausting. It's rewarding because you hear from so many people, but it also is draining. So for me, I do a lot of preparation beforehand because I want to feel comfortable. So you know, it, it is a, a lot of work and effort. I think I've been lucky. I've had people who can help me focus on just the activities that I want to do, which outlets I do want to talk to, and I try to limit to a small number. So the ones I pick are very intentional. 
but I see these people who are doing book tours for a year or, or longer, and that is just something that I don't, if I had to do it, I probably could, but it sounds so hard and so, um, so much like the opposite of what I would ever want to do. That's it from us. A reminder to keep an eye on ft.com slash book award on November the 6th for news of the winner of the FT and McKinsey Business Book of the Year 2017. And look out too for a podcast special in which I will discuss with an editor, an agent and an author as well as finalists in our Brackenbauer Prize for young would-be business writers how to bring a business book from proposal to publication. In the meantime, don't forget to tweet us at FTWorkCareers using the hashtag FTBizBooks. We'd love to hear from you. My thanks to Ellen Powell, to Emma Jacobs and to our producer Yanina Conboy. Until next time, goodbye. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done.